Chapters thirty one and thirty two of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter thirty one Pretended Consolation. In the evening, Anglesea called on me again. His manner was full of the most respectful sympathy. He was my brother's dearest friend. He had acted in my father's and my brother's absence as my own best friend. And since he could not prevent my romantic escapade, he had attended me in the character of a guardian, to see that no fatal mistake was made through Saviola's ignorance of national laws and customs. Therefore I had every reason to trust in him, and confide in him as in an elder brother. I was alone in the little drawing-room when he entered. I received him as warmly, though more gravely, than when he had called at noon. When we were seated I asked him, as I would have asked my brother, whether my husband had really finally abandoned me. He looked searchingly into my face, as if to see how I would be likely to take his answer. Finding in my expression no very distressing anxiety, but simply a wish to know the truth, he replied, "'Saviola has disappointed us all. If I were not speaking to you, I should say that he is scarcely worthy of thought, still less of regret.' "'But are you sure? Has he really and finally abandoned me?' I repeated." He has. You are sure of this? I am. His words and tones were grave, sweet, and compassionate. Where is he now? I next inquired. In Paris. I must write to him again, then, I said, with the idea that, although I no longer loved or respected the man, he was my husband, and to write to him was my duty. I will, will write to him to-night. You may do so, he said, gravely and tenderly. "'Nay, I would even counsel you to do so for the relief of your own mind, "'and that you may never have the slightest cause for self-reproach. "'But I warn you that it will have no effect whatever upon Saviola. "'He will not answer your letter. "'He has not answered any letter of mine since he left for Paris. "'But surely if I write and ask him plainly whether he ever means to return to me, "'and beg him to reply, so that I may know what to do, he will answer. "'No, he will not.' but to satisfy yourself, write to him at once. Then you will know, Elfrida. In the days when we three, Anglesia, my brother, and myself, were as intimate and familiar as the children of one house, he had followed suit with Francis and called me by my Christian name, and sometimes by its abbreviation. I had liked it then, and I liked it now, though this was the first time since my marriage that he had given it to me. Yes, I will write to-night. I will write at once, I said. "'Then I will bid you good evening. "'There is a mail that closes at eleven o'clock. "'If I leave you now, you may be able to secure it,' he said, rising. "'Thank you, Angus. Come again to-morrow,' I said, "'using the name I had been accustomed to give him "'when he was the daily and beloved companion of my brother and myself. "'He took my hand, bowed over it, and left the room. "'Then I sat down to my desk to write the letter to Saviola in Paris. "'I did not reproach him, nor lament his absence.' nor write in any way unkindly or sorrowfully to him. I simply reminded him how long he had been gone, how many letters I had written that remained unanswered, and then inquired whether he meant to return to me, and if so, when. I ended by telling him that my little son and myself were in good health, and begging him to answer me to the point that I might know what to do. So I left him at perfect liberty to act for himself." When I had sealed and directed this letter, I rang and dispatched it to the hotel bag that left the house at a quarter to eleven. Then I went to bed. My child usually slept with his nurse in a little room off my bedchamber, 
but now I called her to bring the baby to me, and I took him into bed and drew him to my bosom, finding comfort in the thought that my child would never desert me, and that no one on earth had power to take him from me. What a soothing balm that little form was pressed to my heart. I lay awake nearly all that night, not with trouble or anxiety, but with thoughts and plans for the future of my child and myself. I had made up my mind. If I should get no answer from Saviola, I would make ready and leave Switzerland for Ireland. I would go with my child to Weirdwaste, which was my own, and live there as I had lived before the fatal journey to Brighton. I would live among my warm-hearted Irish tenants, who, poor as my forefathers had been for generations, had never been oppressed, but always helped to the extent of our power. They had loved my mother, had loved me for her sake, and they would now welcome and love my child, who would be the heir of Weirdwaste, if of nothing more. I would live at Weirdwaste until the return of my father, when I would confess all my faults and follies to him, and appeal to his affection for forgiveness and protection. In two years and a few months I should be of age, and should enter into the full possession of my poor old estate. I should live there always, and bring up my boy to be a Christian gentleman, and a good and wise landlord. The excellent vicar should be his tutor, and look after his education, and the amiable doctor should be his physician, and look after his health. Francis, my dear brother, would visit me often, I felt sure. My father would come sometimes. These were all I really cared to see. We should be happy, my little son and I, in spite of all that had passed. He would never, from his father's example, grow up to become a gambler, a wine-bibber, or an adventurer. He should be trained to become an honor to his name, and a blessing to his tenantry. Thinking these pleasant thoughts, I fell asleep at last, and realized all my anticipations, in my dreams. The next day, and every day for a week, Angus Anglesia came to see me. He no longer spoke of Saviola, but he talked to me of my dear brother, his own dearest friend, a theme of which I never tired. He told me that his ardent studies at Eton had overtasked his strength. His physicians recommended a long vacation, and a total change of air and scene. Therefore he accompanied his father and stepmother to the Canaries, Dr. Alexander and the Rev. Dr. Clement of Weirdwaste attending the party, as traveling physician and private tutor. So, said I, that is the reason why none of my letters addressed to my old friends at Weirdwaste were ever answered. But since the vicar and the doctor were conscripted for foreign service, who, may I ask, was left to take charge of the souls and bodies of the poor people at Weirdwaste? My child, clergymen and physicians are as plenty as wild berries. A curate without a parish, and a doctor without a practice, were easily found to fill the places of the hard-worked and badly paid old vicar and doctor, who needed rest and change about as much as any of the traveling party. So all my friends are in the Canaries. Except myself, Elfrida, I am here, and I will remain near you, to guard you as an elder brother, until your fate is decided. A girl's fate is supposed to be decided when she is married, but that does not take into account the possibility of her desertion by her husband, I replied, but without any bitterness of feeling. No, he admitted very gravely. No, because such possibilities are as exceptional as they are tragical. But take courage, Elfrida, as I was your brother's truest friend and brother, so I will be yours, to remain near you, to guard you, and assist you as long as you may need me. Thank you, Angus, oh, thank you. I am glad that all my family and friends are in the Canaries, since it is so good for them to be there. And I am glad, oh, so glad that you are here, Angus. I do not feel quite alone and helpless now that you are here, 
It is very good of you to say that you will remain near me until something is settled. But will not your doing so interfere with some of your previous engagements? Not with any, he replied. I am an idle man, and even if it were not so, even if I were over head and ears in business, I should let all go in order to be of service to my dear friend's sister in her need. And believe me, Elfrida, I find the greatest happiness in serving you. His generous devotion moved me to tears. I thanked him in the most earnest words at my command. The week passed, and no letter came from Saviola. I was not disappointed, for now I scarcely expected to get one. I reconciled myself to my fate as a forsaken wife, all the more cheerfully for my child's sake, who would thus be saved from the baleful effects of his father's evil example. The week passed, and though no letter came from Saviola, no word on the subject was spoken between Anglesia and myself. CHAPTER Thirty Two, A WOLF IN SHEEP'S CLOTHING Anglesia watched me closely, as if in anxiety to see how much the suspense and uncertainty might affect my health and spirits, and I think he was surprised and pleased to discover that I was not distressed by the situation. It was on the eighth day after my letter had been dispatched that the subject of that letter was first mentioned. It was I who first spoke of it. Anglesia came in to make his usual morning call. After our greetings were over and we had sat down, I said to him, "'It is now more than a week since I wrote to Saviola. I have now no longer the faintest hope of receiving an answer to my letter. I shall not wait here longer. I shall leave Geneva to-morrow. I never supposed for a moment that you would ever hear from him again. I knew, in fact, that it was impossible for you to do so, but I wished you to prove the question to yourself,' he gravely replied. "'You knew it. I thought that you inferred it,' I exclaimed." My inference amounted to moral conviction, moral conviction to positive knowledge. I did not answer him. I scarcely understood him. "'What do you propose to do, Elfrida?' he inquired, gravely and tenderly taking my hand, and then adding, "'Whatever it may be, you see me here ready to stand by you, to counsel and assist you to the utmost of my ability.' "'Oh, I thank you, Angus. I thank you with all my heart and soul. You are indeed a friend and brother raised up to me in the time of need.' I see, I hope I see clearly, that you are wasting no vain regrets on the man who is unworthy of your thoughts, he said, with a strange look that puzzled me, coming from him. I cannot define the look. I had never seen such a one on his face before, and it troubled me. I answered him. I am not grieving as you see, but we will not talk of Saviola. He is my husband after all, you know. Ah, he said, in a sort of equivocal tone that again disturbed me. "'What shall you do now, Elfrida, after leaving Geneva, I mean?' he next inquired. "'I shall go at once to England, cross over to Ireland, and take up my abode at Weirdwaste, where I lived so long before that fatal visit to Brighton.' "'To Weirdwaste!' he exclaimed, in some surprise. "'Yes, it is a poor old manor, but it is my own property in right of my mother, and I shall come into full possession of it as soon as I am of age.' but to that wild, dreary, solitary home where you spent so many lonely, secluded, unhappy years, and of which you complained to your brother and myself so bitterly. Yes, it seemed all that you have described it to be to my willful and impatient childhood and youth, when I longed to see and know the world. I have seen and known enough, and more than enough, of the world, and now my thoughts turn to weird waste and its quiet life as a haven of rest. My poor Elfrida, you would wear your young heart out in such a solitude." No, I would not. I should have my child to occupy and interest me, 
and I shall have the poor on the estate to look after. These duties could not fill your heart, Elfrida. You would languish into melancholia or death. Listen, Elfrida, dearest Elfrida, you talked of that wild seacoast manor house as a haven of rest. It would not be so. It would be to you as a desert, a prison, an exile. See, Elfrida, here is your true haven of rest, he said, bending toward me with a look that sent all the blood rushing to my head and face. What do you mean? Where? I cried in alarm, though I did not understand his meaning. Here, he exclaimed, striking his breast, and then extending both hands toward me. Here, in my love, in my arms, in my bosom. Oh, Elfrida, accept the life's devotion of one who adores you, and who will gladly consecrate all his days to your happiness. I could no longer misunderstand him, nor could I speak for amazement and indignation. He took advantage of my silence to pour out the malaborge of his revolting passion before me. At last, with a great effort, I conquered the speechless panic into which his insults had thrown me, and my wrath and shame burst forth in strong and fiery words. I ordered him from my presence, but he did not go. I called him hard names, a snake in the grass, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a traitor, a hypocrite. He did not reply. He stood up before me and took it all, devouring me with his eyes while his tongue was silent. At length my paroxysm of violence broke down in tears, and I wept in bitter anguish. "'Although I am forsaken, yet still I am a wife,' I said. "'Though my husband has left me, yet still he is my husband.' These words gave him the opportunity he now wanted. I had sunk down in my chair and covered my face with my hands. He came up to me, laid his hand on the back of my chair, and dropping his voice to the lowest tones of reverential sympathy, he said these terrible words. "'No, Elfrida, no, my poor child. It breaks my heart to tell you the truth.' that I have only recently learned to my dismay. But you must hear it sooner or later. Better to hear it kindly, tenderly told, by a friend's tongue, than harshly and suddenly by a wordling's or an enemy's. No, Elfrida, you are no wife. Saviola is dead, then, I exclaimed, in an excess of excitement. No, Elfrida, that is not what I mean. You are no wife, because you never have been. I lifted my head and gazed on him, in dumb horror and amazement. He met my look with one of deepest sorrow and commiseration. "'It is false,' I cried, as soon as I could speak. "'It is foully, cruelly false.' "'I would to heaven it were,' he sighed. "'I would to heaven it were.' There was something in his look and tone that seemed to force truth and despair into my soul. Had my marriage ceremony been unlawful, notwithstanding Anglesia's pretended carefulness? Or what had happened? How had I been betrayed? I struggled not to believe him.' not to question him, but I could not help doing both. Why do you say such, such? I had no words strong enough to utter my thought. He answered me as if I had done so. Because I must, Elfrida, I came to Geneva for that purpose. I came from Saviola, charged with a message to you. He ceased. Go on, I said, go on. I was at that moment almost insane. It took all my power of self-control to keep still. I met him in Paris two weeks ago. He told me that he was on the eve of marriage with Mademoiselle de la Villemont, daughter of the Duc de la Villemont, that he had not the courage to write and break his connection with you, especially as such writing would be dangerous. It might bring you on to Paris to try to prevent it, which would be awkward. So he prayed me to take his farewell message to you. I will not insult you, Elfrida, by giving his message. 
"'Yes, give it. Do not spare me,' I cried out in my agony. "'Then it was to the effect that he was obliged by circumstances to part with you, "'but that as soon as he could command the fortune he was to receive with Mademoiselle de la Villemont, "'he would make a suitable provision for you and your child.' "'You heard him say that? You, my brother's friend, and you did not slay him on the spot?' I cried, with all my blood on fire. "'My dear Elfrida, my scorn, contempt, and indignation might have led me to knock the villain down, and trample him to death. But, my child, we are all living in civilized Europe, and in the nineteenth century, and our education teaches us to subdue the wild beast that is within us. Besides, I had you to think of.' If I should slay Saviola and be cast into prison, who would take care of you? Your father and brother, even your old pastor and doctor, were away in the Canaries, and you had not a friend in the world near you. And I have not now, I cried, in bitter despair. Do not say that, Elfrida. I lay my life at your feet. No more of that. Your every word insults me. And you could come here with a false face and let me write to that man and never tell me what you have only told me now. My dear Elfrida, could I burst upon you suddenly with news that, for aught I then knew, might have killed you on the spot, or maddened you for life? No, none but a brute could have done so. I had to feel my way, to lead you slowly up to the truth, to strengthen you to bear it. That is why I allowed you to write to Saviola, and to wait for a letter from him. That is why I watched your every tone and look. While doing so, I perceived that your happiness did not depend on your union with Saviola. "'Tell me this,' I burst out, almost furiously. "'How was it that you, who went ostensibly to guard me against misadventure, "'became accessory to some deception which rendered that marriage right "'performed between me and Saviola of no legal effect? "'Tell me this, O traitor and hypocrite.'" End of chapter 32